Metta practice is essentially the practice of boundless well-wishing towards all beings. It's also the practice of perfect happiness in oneself, which is a reflection of the ability to be able to offer boundless well-wishes to all beings. So I thought it would be nice if we began just kind of as an invocation for the day. I'll read you a standard prayer that comes... uh, This is essentially a translation of Tibetan practice of the prayer for the four immeasurable thoughts. This is pretty boundless. May all beings have happiness and the cause of happiness, which is virtue. May all beings be free from sorrow and the cause of sorrow, which is non-virtue. May all beings remain unseparated from the sacred happiness, which is free from sorrow. May all beings come to rest in the great equanimity beyond attachment and aversion to those near and far. That's pretty immeasurable. So good morning. My name is Sylvia. Happy Halloween. Actually, I thought this morning about coming in a costume in the spirit. (laughs) So I have a witch costume. I have a great witch puppet that I can do on my hand and I taught a class on Halloween some years ago and I did it as if my witch puppet was talking but it didn't feel right to do metta through a witch puppet I just (laughs) so I decided it wasn't in good taste and I left my witch puppet home we'll do it another time how many people here have never done metta practice before oh terrific I love to be the inaugurator of people. How many people have never done Vipassana practice before? Ta-da, this is a terrific day. I get to do baptisms on two scores. (laughs) Gives me a lot of pleasure. These are practices which are apart from the personal gifts that I've had in my life in terms of the people who are dear to me. In terms of the non-animate things in my life, these practices are the dearest things I've ever received. So I am totally always overjoyed to share them with whomever. So I'm happy that you're here. So maybe I should talk a little bit about what metta practice is, how it's different from vipassana practice, how it actually isn't different from it at all, although people think it is. Sometimes people do vipassana practice for some period of time and then are introduced to metta practice and think it's something new. Uh, Often, uh, at least in the West, metta practice has been the way that people end vipassana retreats so that people think it's kind of the goodbye salute or the ceremony at the end of a vipassana retreat to then re-enter the world. Actually, it has a, a very long and uh, as um, um, valuable a, a, or as um, important a stance in practice as Vipassana practice. It's not an added-to latter-day practice. And there's a way in which I hope I'll be able to make clear to you that it's not actually so different from Vipassana practice. As a matter of fact, in the in the... Uh, 
original Pali canon and the teachings of the Buddha and the Theravada tradition, there really aren't a lot of teaching suttas. Mostly the Buddha talked to people who wanted to listen to him. And mostly he told them how things were. And mostly, or not mostly, but often, they got enlightened, not from doing any practice, but just from hearing the Buddha speak. That's always so exciting to me to think about that. I actually often think about it when, I, when I'm in the situation of hearing somebody about to give a talk. I know that there's a great history in this tradition of people who listen to the truth and listen to it with such an open heart and such steadiness of mind and such total one-pointedness of focused attention that totally every resistance to complete understanding fell away and they were totally enlightened forever. And that's so inspiring to me. I frequently invoke that as a possibility for myself when I'm listening to a talk. Actually, it's a very good invocation. I mean, even short of total enlightenment, it really brings a real excitement to listening. It's kind of Suzuki Roshi's beginner's mind. You never know, you know. I mean, there is a tradition of people becoming totally liberated just from listening. So that I say that to myself actually quite a lot of the time. You never know, Sylvia, this might be the time. So in the time of the Buddha, he mostly just told people how it is that suffering exists as a result of clinging that really doesn't make any sense for anybody with any kind of vision to cling at all since all things that are conditioned come and go. If we saw that fully and were released from clinging, we'd be free of suffering. That's all. It's pretty actually clear. There's a wonder that we keep on behaving like we don't get it. We keep on clinging and holding on and pushing away and trying to manipulate our lives as if we have more control of them than we actually do. So that's what he taught, and mostly people got it just from hearing. He also taught two teaching practice suttas. He taught two suttas that said, in case you didn't get it from what I just told you, <laughs> here are some practices that you might do to help you along. And one of them is the Satipatthana Sutta in which he explains how to do vipassana practice. Just pay attention. Pay attention in every aspect of your life. Pay attention to the arising and passing of physical sensations, of liking and disliking, of mind moods. Pay attention to just how things work in the world. Pay attention and you'll see that everything comes and goes. That because everything comes and goes, there's no place of really complete satisfaction that suffering is inherent in not seeing that because everything comes and goes. And that everything comes and goes according to conditions. Nothing happens by chance. Everything is conditioned. So things arise and pass away according to conditions. And not seeing that leads to suffering. And that's really why we do vipassana practice, to see that, to experience that firsthand. And that's all of what the Satipatthana Sutta is. The Metta Sutta cultivates quite a different, um, has another path to coming about that same realization. And the path is that of steadiness and openness of heart. Instead of saying, 
look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this. Notice everything passing. It says, cultivate the heart that stays open and steadfast and clear and um, uninhibited, unbounded in its perception. Cultivate that in all circumstances. And then the last line, which would manifest in well-wishing towards all beings, have no closedness of heart or mind in any circumstance towards those whom you love very much, for whom it's easy, to those whom you love less, where it's pretty easy but not so easy, to those whom you don't know at all, which whom you can identify with as human beings on the path like we are, you might find it possible to wish well to even towards those who make difficulty or you experience in a difficult way in life because that's really where the heart and mind tend to close off into opinions and see in a narrow perspective rather than in a broad perspective of understanding. Hold everyone in the same place of understanding because that is the place of the open and steadfast, balanced and clear-seeing mind. And then the last line of the Metta Sutta says, in that mind, understanding will arise, rebirth will not occur. It's really an... um, not often talked about, but the very last line of the Metta Sutta, many commentators assume, means that that is equally a way to liberation and freedom, as is the path of insight. That's very inspiring to think about, you know. That, not that this is the warm-up for the insight practice, but really, in its own way, uh, the path to freedom. I like to think that all of those people who listened to the Buddha speak and were in a moment on hearing his words liberated did that because they had cultivated that kind of openness of heart and steadiness of heart, receptivity and lack of attachments to opinions that allowed them, when they heard the truth, to get it in one second so that they were as free, as liberated as those who followed the path of insight as a way of coming to realization. So I hope that makes a little bit of sense to you as a kind of warm-up for this. So, for one of the reasons, when I, when I grew up in New York, I, I come from a long line of uh, New York City school teachers. It's in the, somehow it comes in the genes. If it doesn't come in the genes, it comes in the... Uh, in the environment. And one of the things I learned as a, uh, really all of my life, is not only to teach everything that I know, but to start to teach everything that I taught by telling people what was called the aim and the motivation. When you made a lesson, those people here who have taken teaching pedagogy courses know that you start with motivation, aim, what you're going to do, and how to motivate people. Do you want to know how tall that mountain is without climbing up it? How high that telephone pole is without climbing up it? You do? Okay, we'll learn trigonometry. So you motivate people because you see that you want to do this? Okay, now we'll do trigonometry. So I will motivate you. Do you want to be free? Now we'll do metta. <laughs> that was the motivation. <laughs> 
There are all kinds of other ways to rephrase that motivation. One of them is, do you want to be free of the pain of anger? Do you want to not have grudges? Uh, often people don't think that's possible. They feel, I've been hurt so much in life that I really can't, somehow this anger seems imbued in my very self. Can't be finished with it. Or I can't be finished with it in co until I come to some external resolution, until I really confront it on the outside, which is sometimes very necessary, but sometimes not possible. I can't be free of it until the other person makes restitution, which is very helpful, but sometimes not possible. I'd like to suggest that we can be free and that one way of looking at metta is it's a way, it's an antidote to anger in the mind. Another way of thinking about it is as a concentration practice, because it is a concentration practice. We really, in metta practice, attempt to repeat and allow the mind to dwell on a certain set of phrases and to do them over and over and over again. So that rather unlike vipassana practice where the instruction is just be here for whatever arises and don't condition your experience, metta practice conditions your experience. It says do the following. Make these recitations. Do them over and over and over again. Doing that develops a certain level of concentration. There are various ways in which to understand why one might want to. I mean, except in the abstract, well, concentration would be nice, why not? It has some other values in addition to it. Concentration is very valuable in the development of insight. In order to be able to develop, for insight to arise, some level of concentration needs to be present. So it's valuable even if one thought, well, my path is vipassana, I'm not a metta type. Certain amount of metta is really valuable for establishing a vipassana practice. People do a lot of metta days and days and weeks and weeks. They really develop some quite profound altered states of consciousness, which are called jhanas in traditional practice. And they mean altered states of consciousness, not uh, which don't permit a person to get up and move about in their life, because you can, I mean, not totally, it's not cave consciousness oblivious to the outside world, but it's a consciousness which is really quite altered from our sort of run-of-the-mill workday, weekday consciousness, in the sense that uh, one might feel quite profoundly transported by waves of lovingness or waves of compassion or great equanimity and say, well, that sounds very valuable. Maybe we should just do that all the time. That sounds like a wonderful thing. Well, it is. And people say, well, suppose that's only possible, that sort of profound altered state in retreat circumstances. My experience and the experience of other people that I know have practiced it in an intense way, in an intensive way, discover that even when one leaves off intensive practice and continues in the worldly weekday life, there's a hangover from it. I guess that's a funny word to use. Maybe we should use carryover, but, uh, but there is a kind of a carryover from it. It conditions 
what the workday, weekday mind is. In a certain sense, that's why in, in all kinds of practice, vipassana or metta or whatever, we really encourage that people do some sitting practice every day, which is kind of like a mini-retreat, because it establishes a certain kind of base-level mindset that then carries us into the day. So there are those wonderful states of uh, good wishing and compassion and rejoicing in the, in the good fortune of others and equanimity of spirit, which are the fruits of concentration that are part of metta practice. That's another reason to do metta. It's also a renunciation practice that occurred to me as I was driving out this morning. But that's another way to say it, that especially for people who have been used to doing vipassana practice, when we start to practice in a minute, you may discover that it's a little hard to do metta practice. It's a peculiar thing to discover that it's hard to sit and wish yourself well. I mean, it seems like an easy thing to do. But in a certain sense, there's something about vipassana practice which is easy doesn't have any instructions. You just sit there and wait for experience to unfold as it keeps on doing all the time and just rest in that. Pay attention to it. So there's nothing much to do but hang out and be here for what's happening. And sometimes it's pleasant and interesting and sometimes it's unpleasant or uninteresting or boring or difficult. But it's just what it is. And the only job that one has to do is to stay awake and not struggle with it. So that's a job, and vipassana practice isn't easy, but you don't have to do anything extra. And sometimes people who have been doing vipassana practice discover that it's a kind of a stretch to kind of mobilize the mind to do something. It's kind of, um, it's kind of a little pull that says, can't I just sit here for my regular experience? I just really like to do that and take it as I come. Take it as it comes. So a little bit it's a renunciation of the familiar when we take on something else and say, well, that's what I know how to do, but instead of that, I'll renounce the familiar and I'll do this in the service of where I think it's going to take me. So those are all the motivations and aims and goals and I hope inspirations. Now you probably want to try it, I hope. <laughs> so we'll try. Sit in a way that's really quite comfortable for you. You really want to be able to wish yourself well in a kind of a wholehearted way so it wouldn't make any sense to sit in a posture that would make you uncomfortable. So sit in a way that you can be reasonably still and reasonably alert, reasonably erect of posture. That's just because it keeps you awake.
Let the body just settle into breathing. keep your eyes open if that's more comfortable for you, but if it's relaxed for you and you can stay awake, you can allow your eyes to close. Try to smile. It's actually an instruction. It also relaxes the muscles in the face. When the Buddha taught metta, he taught it in the following way. He said that one should start with oneself when one began the practice of well-wishing, should wish in one way or another for real freedom and openness of heart and mind for oneself, because that would be the only way that one could really fully offer well-wishing to anyone else. And he taught, really with a psychology that I always find very remarkable, that the best way to be in a place of wishing well to oneself is to think about something about oneself for which one felt grateful. Think about something good about yourself. Something as easy as I brought myself here today for a whole day of practice. Kind of a thank you to yourself or an acknowledgement of your own spiritual aspiration. Kind of in gratitude and in recognition of one's own spiritual aspiration and spiritual dedication. So it's something really easy. It bypasses all the hesitations that we might have about worthiness or anything else that sometimes gets in the way of wishing ourselves totally well.
Sometimes people, as they practice metta and as they make the practice their own, develop changes in the words that they say that suit their own practice or their own temperament, seem somehow poetically more correct for them. And so I tell you that in advance, that as the days or the weeks go by, you may, if you want to, change or alter the phrases that I'll teach you if the changed or altered phrases work out better for you. For myself, I have always been very comfortable with the phrases directly from Scripture. I think I have a feeling that if they served so many people for 2,500 years, they're probably all right phrases. They seem right for me. They're a little bit peculiar translated into English or maybe archaic, but I like them fine. So those are the ones that I'll teach to you and like to suggest that you begin by working with them and keep an open mind about changing them if you need to, feeling relaxed about that. This is how the practice of metta goes. As one sits, breathing easily, body relaxed, perhaps in synchrony with the breath, but not necessarily, one makes the recitation of four phrases over and over again in the mind. These are the phrases. May I be free of danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. much different from each other. They're the wish for wellness and happiness and peacefulness. It's kind of holding that wish in four different ways. So I'll say them for you again. May I be free from danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. I'll say them again so that you can be sure that you're saying them in your mind. May I be free from danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. 
May I have ease of well-being. May I be free of danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. I'll be quiet for a little while before I give you another instruction. See if you can repeat those phrases over and over in the mind. Just let each phrase arise in the mind. The mind dwells in that and lets it go. The next phrase arises, the mind knows it and lets it go. And the next, and the next. Just feel the phrase arise in the mind. Touch it with the heart and mind. Let it go. Free from danger. Mental happiness. Physical happiness. Ease of well-being. Practice that for a little while and then I'll give you another instruction to go along with it. As you continue to say those phrases in the mind, there's a way in which the attention can stay alert and sharp and interested in each phrase, even as you go over and over and over the phrases. Because actually, although the basic wish is the wish for well-being, each of those phrases is as if it considers well-being in a slightly differently nuanced way. So that when I say for myself, may I be free from danger, I don't think of dangerous situations that I might be freed from, but I try to feel in my body what it would be to feel safe. So I make the invocation, may I be free from danger, And as I say it, I try to feel in the mind and body what it would feel like to feel safe. And when I make the invocation, may I have mental happiness. I don't think of those specific events in life that might happen that I'd be grateful for, so much as I try to allow the feeling of happiness to arise in the mind. Just for that moment, the intention to experience that feeling of happiness in the mind just for that moment, to meet the thought. When I say to myself, may I have physical happiness, I don't think of particular physical problems that I might have or discomforts that I might have. 
I just try for that moment to meet the thought with this whatever arises in my body as a sense of physical happiness. When I make the intention in the mind, may I have ease of well-being. I don't think a story about what particular ways that might manifest. Just have a sense about me, about what that might be like in the mind and body. I actually think that's where the instruction to smile comes from. That somehow in that moment there's a moment of ease. By doing that, by meeting each intention with attention and with that nuance of awareness, how would this be? How is this? How is this? How is this? It's really to cultivate those mind and body states. So it's not just to have a kind of theoretical hope but really to do a practice that cultivates those mind and body states. It's not just a wish, it's a practice. So let's practice a little bit more using oneself, using those four intentions, feeling them in the mind and the body. There's one last instruction to add to this piece of practice as we continue to sit here together. When the Buddha taught metta, he taught that one began with oneself as the recipient of metta because it was only through opening one's own heart that one could really wish well fully to others. And he taught that at the same time, to facilitate the opening of one's heart most fully, one could start at the same time with well-wishing towards an individual or individuals whom he called benefactors. In the time of the Buddha, I think people thought of the Buddha as their benefactor. Benefactor is a person towards whom you have totally, totally uncomplicated feelings of warm gratitude. We often don't have so many people like that in our lives, people whom we love a lot. Think of someone whom we absolutely feel very, very, very grateful for. We absolutely no problem wishing well towards. Perhaps it's a spiritual teacher you've had. Perhaps it's a relative you've had. Sometimes people have grandparents who are significant spiritual teachers for them. 
or parents. Think of someone towards whom you have absolutely uncomplicated feelings of well-wishing. Sometimes people find it hard to find someone that, with whom the relationship is totally uncomplicated. Find some avenue of gratitude towards some person, something that you're really grateful for. And then on behalf of that attitude or that act that that person did, we can use that person around the personification of that act as a recipient of our well-wishing. The reason for picking an uncomplicated, easy recipient of gratitude is that the Buddha felt that gratitude is that impulse that really opens the heart. So thinking of a person towards whom we feel a great deal of gratitude, we can wish that person those same wishes, even feel those same feelings in the mind and body, to sort of live the intention. May you be free of danger. May you have mental happiness. May you have physical happiness. May you have ease of well-being. May you be free of danger. May you have mental happiness. May you have physical happiness. May you have ease of well-being. We'll sit a little while longer and we'll do this practice <coughs> using all of the instructions that we've had all along to sit with ease, to feel the intentions in your mind and body, to keep as fully with the phrases as one can. You lose your place, start again. Forget a phrase, go back to the beginning. Words come out jumbled, it doesn't matter. 
The words are the vehicle for the intention of the heart. When we make the intention for someone else, we hold that person in the mind's eye and direct those intentions towards that person. And what people often do in this beginning part of practice is to alternate making intentions for another person and then intentions for themselves, intentions for the other person, intentions for themselves. And often the good feeling that comes from making intentions of well-wishing for someone we love a lot really inspires our ability to wish ourselves well at the same time. And that's why they're done at the same time. So we'll sit perhaps five minutes more working with these two objects, oneself and one's benefactor. So what I'd like to talk about a little bit is what was your experience and how do you feel and what are your questions? Because metta practice is not very much more complicated than that. You learn a certain amount of, certain number of phrases, which after a while get to be second nature. It's really not the phrases, it's the intention that one brings to the phrases it's really the cultivation of those, that kind of heart and mind that can open fully to feelings of happiness and ease. It's really to practice happiness, to practice ease, to practice freedom. Um, I couldn't be here last weekend. I was back east, but uh, so, so many of you, I'm sure, were here when Thich Nhat Hanh was here, although... I couldn't be here. But I was, many years ago, so uh, so affected by a particular teaching of his where he taught 
about smiling when people sat. And somebody said, you know, I don't feel like I can smile because I have all these things going on in my life and I'm not happy and have this problem and that problem and this anger and that anger and this sadness and that grief. And his response was so moving to me because it totally acknowledged that we all have those things in our lives, sadness and grief, really the fabric of what it is to be an incarnate life. Uh, But he talked about how smiling, just for the moment, is really the practice of freedom. It's as if to say, I acknowledge that this is true. I really acknowledge that in a certain way, I can act skillfully in my life, I can behave in a way that's skillful, I can take every opportunity to cultivate a life that generates um, pleasure and contentment, and I can also smile with what's ever there, which really is to change one's stance from being a victim trapped by one's circumstances to being actually a free person who sees what's true. That really to be able in every moment to say this is what's true and I am open is really to practice liberation, it's really to practice freedom. It's a really incredibly powerful teaching. So, having said all that, what was your experience? Yeah. Interesting you should mention Thich Han because I sat in retreat with him when I was here last weekend and he so deeply moves me and last weekend he did so I used him as the object and I found tears of gratitude coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, um, mm. I'm very happy to hear that. Tell me your name. Louise. Louise. I'm very happy to hear that, first of all, because I am also very, very moved by his teachings. And also, it, uh, it so makes the point of why the Buddha taught the value of a benefactor, if you can think of one. Because as we are moved, and even moved to tears, as we really open in gratitude for someone who has taught us something about what it means to be free, In that moment, we are really more prepared to wish ourselves well, you know, in all kinds of ways hidden to ourselves. I think most people imagine that they can wish themselves well. Who doesn't want to be well? If we said, here, everybody raise your hand. If you want to be well and happy and peaceful, everybody would raise their hand. And yet there are all kinds of secret ways in which we either feel unworthy or somehow not ready or somehow like there's so much burden in our lives we couldn't possibly be happy or we're not ready to merit it and that somehow we have to circumvent all of those stories in the mind which is really all that they are which stands in the way of us being content in this moment doesn't solve all the problems of the life but this moment is the only time we have this moment and this moment is the only moment that we have any choice in so that it's such a splendid teaching because it's kind of like as we open to that benefactor, as we really uh, just are naturally open towards that benefactor, 
can sneak in a moment of openness to ourselves. You know what I think it's like? If you remember, if you are old enough to remember, I'm not old enough to have actually seen this, but I did see it in movies, where, uh, almost old enough to have seen it, where before they had cars that you turned on with a key, you turn them on with a crank in the front. You remember those old movies where someone stood in front and cranked up the car and got the motor to turn over and then jumped in the car and the car rode off? That's what doing metta towards a benefactor is like. You kind of crank up the heart and get it going towards someone towards whom one has no difficulty with the flow of well-wishing. None of those stories about you don't deserve it or it's not coming to you or you'll do other people first or all the stories that we tell ourselves that get in the way. And then while the heart is kind of purring along like the motor is running, kind of accidentally on the strength of that purring, get in a few well wishes towards oneself, as if one has forgotten that one has all those stories going. And then what happens is that actually one feels in a more expansive mood and one discovers the benefits of metta and becomes, in a sense, easier and easier. It's so strange to think that we might not be our own best friend, but I think that that's often the experience. And think, well, I could wish well to my friends, even to neutral people, to my enemies. Well, that's another story. But often we're not so friendly to ourselves as well. So thank you very much for saying that. Who else had a question? What's your name? Tony. Tony. Thank you for that, Tony. It's it's amazing how the, the how the mind is just such an inveterate storyteller. It is prepared to take every possible is prepared to take every possible opportunity to tell a story. He is it not working? No. Do you know how to fix it, John? Marianne. Here comes Marianne to the rescue. Marianne is now the benefactor. She will fix the mic. I don't know. The record is recording. The volume. <laughs> but that's two things, Marianne. I can only do one thing. <laughs> no, I'm fine. Thank you. It's on. <laughs> I'm sorry. Technical stuff is not my long suit. Like the volume. <laughs> is that better now? Okay. <laughs> I was saying is that the mind, given any opportunity, is prepared out of its great reservoir of material to make a complicated story, like we're going along wishing ourselves, well, no problem, think of Thich Nhat Hanh, zero problem, great happiness, bring the attention back on oneself, all of a sudden the comparing mind leaps in, starts to say, well, for Thich Nhat Hanh, of course, well-wishing, <coughs> but for myself, 
I mean, where does that come from? That's just a story. I mean, if the heart is open and unbarred and uninhibited, we don't use it up. I mean, it's not like there's a limited amount of metta. And if we use it up on ourselves, unworthy, we won't have enough left for other people more worthy. I mean, it's really the natural condition of the heart. We're not even cultivating something that isn't there. I mean, all we're really doing is removing those barriers to the realization of it. Actually, what would be a wonderful thing is if it comes up and you think about that, think to yourself, I think that Han would really like it if I were loving myself. <laughs> he would really smile at me, and that's a way of... Uh, facilitating it. I often imagine that my benefactor is smiling at me when I practice. You can change benefactors, by the way. If you have one benefactor who's a main benefactor for you, that's wonderful. Sometimes people say, well, you know, different people come to mind. That's all right also. What else was your experience? Yeah. I had a question. Yeah. So when you do the meta for the benefactor, for the mm-hmm. person, and then you, you try to also experience it in your body, and saying, maybe be free from danger. I try to, with the instruction, I also try to experience that in my body, as, even as if I was saying it for myself, but my attention is focused on that. I do. I do. If it's complicated, you don't have to, but... I can't imagine, I can't feel in someone else's body. But it's a way for myself to really feel the intention. It's to connect with the intention in a way that's not just a head trip. Uh, you know. And it's a way also for me to stay alert so that I'm not just saying phrases, da 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 Because all those phrases are a little bit different. So, I mean, they're all the wishing of good things. But for me, each one feels a little bit different in my body. So it's a way for me to keep the mind alert and not bored. And so if it works for you, if it works for you, if it's confusing, you can just be visualizing that person and imagining the benefits for them in some way. Don't make it complicated for yourself. The instruction is to do what what's functional for you, what keeps the mind awake and happy and delighted, because those are really the keys to being able to practice. What's your name? Emmanuel. Emmanuel. What well, else? Me was that I, I had a conflict with someone before I left for the day to come here, so I was kind of ruminating about that, and then I just I felt more humorous. Like the conflict was there, but a feeling of happiness was there too. I'm happy to hear that. Uh, actually, that's really uh, the long goal and the short goal, and one of the really important goals of metta practice is on many levels it uh, dissolves antipathy. It just does. Uh, there's a level of understanding that all beings want to be happy, and so if they've offended us in some way, it's just through ignorance and. <coughs> And so irritation falls away. It's the level at which, as the mind becomes concentrated, there's a certain amount of rapture in the body. And rapture is an antidote towards aversion. It just erases grudge. 
It's like one of those magic, uh, it's like a magic potion. Like sometimes people take those little drops and they put an anti-anger or an anti-fear drop on their tongue. Rapture is like an anti-fear drop in the mind. I mean, it's hard to be rapturous and angry at somebody. You can't hold the two of them in the mind at the same time. It's kind of the natural antidote to aversion. So you don't forget about what the person did. You remember it, but you hold it in a different way. It's funny or it's trivial or it's amazing that we got so upset about that. Oh. Trudy. During the mental practice, there's a sensation in the body like I have a little bit of pain and it's I wanted to like go to that and do the pasana practice a little bit, but then I didn't because I was a little confused as to what the instruction is for that. So the the question is, what do you do if some discomfort in the body comes up? Uh, and people who've been doing vipassana usually uh, uh, relate to um, strong sensation in the body by just resting the attention in that strong sensation and then watching the changes in the sensation. There'll be a time uh, in practice, I think, when the the demarcations between metta and vipassana are more blurred and they become just people's practice. And there'll be at some point where you might be sitting and doing metta, sensation comes up, and then you just sit with that for a while and then come back to the metta. It's not... Uh, kind of a way of interpolating both of those practices together. For today, for the cultivation of metta, really for the opportunity to see what metta practiced over a period of several hours does, I would just move my body. I'd relax my shoulders, move them around a little bit, make myself comfortable, take a deep breath and go back to the phrases. It's really it's concentration practice. Yeah. Hi. Hi, Michelle. Hello, Michelle. Hi. Uh, a couple of things, and one has to do with pain, too. I, I have a lot of uh, kind of chronic pain in my upper back. And in the phrases, the one that I had the hardest time really sensing was, may I have physical happiness. So I feel, aha, you know, this is probably the one that would be the most helpful to practice. And so what I try to do is to just send a kind of a loving kindness mm-hmm. to the back pain. Because mm-hmm. what I'll do is I'll fidget, and, and but that doesn't really help very much. You know, mm-hmm. The pain continues. So mm-hmm. um, it, I don't quite. It's hard for me to imagine physical happiness, and I think that's probably part of the pain. But I'm trying to just send loving kindness to the pain itself <coughs> instead of trying to get rid of it mm-hmm. and see what what happens with that. It seems to help a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think that's a wonderful idea, Michelle. So that when you say it, first of all, sit in the most comfortable way for yourself. See if maybe maybe actually even breathing on the phrase. Although, so how many people here discover that they're saying those phrases on the breath? And some, how many people discover it's complicated to say it on the breath? It's just how many people didn't pay any attention about whether or not it's on the breath. <laughs> It doesn't need to be. Although some people discover if they do breath in, breath out, breath in, breath out, they do the four phrases on that. Depends, and some people not. But when you breathe out, there's a certain amount of letting go in the body. You might try, Michelle, 
even to dwell on that one phrase for a while, if the if the sensations in the back become quite strong, it's very tricky because you want to be able to make that uh, intention in the mind. May I have physical happiness? This is what it might feel like, without it all requiring that it feel like that. You know that there's the there's the way of doing it so that it will happen that has already a certain amount of pull in it, and there's a way of doing it that just puts it out as an intention and lets it go, so that if it happens, and if not, but really to feel those feelings in the body, and maybe do a couple of times, may I have physical happiness, and see if you can just let the body go, holding those feelings in the body, and just let it go, and being all right if they don't, and then just shifting your body. Well, I'll tell you all some of the, the some of the traditional meta instructions, and then you can do whatever you like with them. Because my sense is that what we are really doing is cultivating <coughs> the natural heart that's already there and removing any reservation or any hindrance to the flowing of the wishing of well-being, which is I think which is our natural state. Everything else is commentary. I think we're not doing anything that's unnormal or anything that we have to develop. I think we already have it as our birthright and we have forgotten it and complicated it. So all of the instructions are just ways to remind us that that's the natural state of the relaxed heart. Okay. Having said that, there are certain traditional instructions which usually work very well and you can play with them as well. The benefactor one, usually when people give the instructions for the benefactor is to pick someone, I guess in the days of the Buddha, like the Buddha. Not very many of us have Buddhas in our lives, have people entirely symbols of our gratitude for our spiritual awakening and uncomplicated. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 31, 1993. It is an offering of the... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.